Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today, we're going to be talking about something that most people in Canada have been thinking about for the last few weeks. We're going to be talking a bit about the Freedom Convoy, which ended with a police crackdown last weekend on Friday and on Saturday. I was up in Ottawa for the Friday. You can read my report on what I saw and some of my analysis of that at thebridgehead.ca, where I took a look at what the media was doing up in Ottawa, what the police were doing up in Ottawa, and how the whole thing was unfolding. Because it's really important to note, I think, that the Freedom Convoy has succeeded beyond anybody's wildest imaginings. This was just a grassroots movement that started off in Vancouver, heading across the country, started off about cross-border vaccine mandates, turned into a protest of all vaccine mandates, and it turned into a, a largely blue-collar thing to an entirely disparate group of people that were impossible to characterize except for their unity around the single issue of opposition to coercion with regards to, to vaccination. So it's a really interesting story because it's Canada's first major grassroots uprising in decades. I think this is probably the first significant, you know, anti-government revolt since Alberta separatism spiked before the rise of the Reform Party. It's been a fascinating story to watch because for years and years and years, Canadians basically put up with whatever their government put on them until one day they didn't. And you had all these 18-wheelers, these semis, these, these trucks of every kind heading across the country and then ending up in Ottawa where they sat for weeks and basically created this de facto community, this new human ecosystem that hadn't been existed. And that, of course, lasted until this past weekend. And so to give you an idea of what this movement was like on the ground and what the crackdown was like from the, the perspective of the convoy protesters. I'm gonna, we're going to be talking to David Paisley. He was the convoy captain for Wellington Street, which runs past the Prime Minister's office and in front of the Peace Tower and the Parliament. I've interviewed him a couple of times for different reports on the Freedom Convoy for the American Conservative and for other publications. And he was right in the thick of it the entire time. He was, you know, in meetings with the various convoy leaders. He was helping organize the services that sprung up overnight. And then he was arrested on the Saturday, right before the whole thing fell apart. So I wanted to kind of get his perspective on that and share all of it with you. What the truckers did, I think, is, is pretty incredible, right? They, they are partially responsible for getting the vax tax dropped in Quebec for vaccine passports dropped in Ontario, Quebec, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. They took out conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, and the next conservative leader will for sure be against vaccine mandates. So they essentially, you know, showed up in Ottawa and ensured that they'll have a political voice moving forward. And they've done an enormous damage to Trudeau's leadership based on all the polling data we have. That's quite something. So let's talk to somebody uh, who was on the ground and hear how this all went down. All right, David, uh, just to start off, maybe introduce yourself to our listeners. Uh, you've already been quoted extensively uh, on, on LifeSite News, so some of the, the readers and listeners will be aware of who you are, but kind of give us an idea of uh, how you ended up the convoy captain of Wellington Street on the uh, Freedom Convoy. I'm David. I'm from a uh, small town in uh, southwestern Ontario, and before this, I was working with HVAC systems and just doing my thing and was certainly frustrated with the direction we were headed like early on in the pandemic. I had some serious concerns about the government overreach and these seemingly dictatorial powers that were starting to come in, telling people where they could go, who they could be with. 
and on and on it went. And then it crossed a, another line. There were a few lines that were crossed, but across the line for me when I started to see people losing their jobs, being denied access to public places, not being able to, you know, go to their children's sporting events or visit loved ones and, and just destroying families, destroying relationships. And that was a huge concern for me. And then when I heard about the convoy, like many freedom loving Canadians, I was very encouraged to see people taking action and especially coming from working class people, kind of my people and, and, and as it were, and seeing them take that stand and say enough is enough and, and taking that stand for freedom. And so the Thursday when the first wave of the convoy came through Southern Ontario, I happened to be off work in decent time. And so I drove out to an overpass and I was, you know, half expecting that maybe it'd just be me and a couple other randoms out there with our flags. But when I pulled up, there was <laughs> cars all over the place, people walking up and down the street and several hundred people at this overpass. And I was just overwhelmed uh, with pride in my country. And basically from that moment forward, given hope, Again, seeing the signs, seeing the kids, people of all ages, and I watched these vehicles come through, trucks and trailers and, and all sorts of vehicles, and, this, and the big, you've, you've seen them all online, and that was uh, actually, I guess, I hadn't even thought about this before, but that was the first that I saw the shed truck <laughs> come passing passing through, and now little would I know I'd be, a, a shed would become a big part of my life, but Anyway, and then after I, I got home that day, I immediately reached out to some friends, one of whom is a trucker himself, and said, we got to get to Ottawa. And so five of us loaded into his pickup truck, and on Friday, we drove up to Ottawa, and I haven't left. So I started out, like many people there, waving a flag and just hopping into some driver's seats and encouraging drivers and talking to people, and by the end of the weekend... I said, this is important. I need to stay here. And I called my boss and thankfully he was supportive and uh, agreed to give me some holidays. And so I booked a hotel and I stayed on and that's how I ended up there. So one of the interesting things in, in, in our conversations about how things developed in Ottawa prior to last weekend is the extent to which the sort of organic city kind of sprung up. There was... Now, there was a couple of people who were recognized as leaders like like Tamara Lynch, like uh, like Chris Baber. Like, so there was there were some people who had been, you know, with the sort of organizing committee from the beginning. But the, the entire thing was actually like there, you know, there was everything from Bible verses to, you know, you know, ex-communist people who grew up in communist countries wrote signs to, to F. Trudeau signs like there was every imaginable different kind of of sign, you know, from from the sacred to the profane. If you will, and the one thing that was uniting everybody was in opposition to these mandates. But then from from talking to you and and quite a few other people, like sort of overnight, you had this sort of makeshift city spring up. And that's how you ended up becoming kind of the convoy captain of Wellington. Maybe give our listeners an idea of. So you get there this first weekend. There was thousands and thousands of people in the city there that first weekend, which was, I think, the biggest weekend. And then from there on out, a sort of, you know, new ecosystem sprung up. Want to give us a kind of a sense of what that was like? Like many people there, I'm used to being useful. And you can only stand around waving a flag for so much until you feel, you feel a responsibility to get involved. And 
most of the people there are not the types to just be constantly taking. They're people who like to give. They're business owners. They're community leaders. They're people who are involved. And and so after that weekend, you know, immediately I want to get involved. I spent the first week just networking and, and trying to get a sense of what was going on. And like many people and like the media reports, assumed that there was some structure to this, <laughs> but quickly realized that this was so much bigger and encompassing than anything the organizers could have imagined or, or hoped for, really. And it was uh, the, the, the great true story of this is an incredible movement, uh, grassroots movement, p- perhaps the most incredible grassroots <laughs> movement that certainly in my lifetime that Canada's seen. And so yeah, this whole ecosystem, this whole economy developed right there on Wellington Street and in other areas too. I mean, we were just one of, of some of the streets, but we had, every time there was a need, people stepped up and little hierarchies were formed to care for that need. So, you know, garbage would start to build up. And so it's like, well, we need garbage bags. So someone would take it upon themselves to buy some garbage bags and then a certain trailer you know, became the destination to drop off garbage bags if you had empty garbage bags. And soon we had a whole stash of empty garbage bags. So people would know if they need a garbage bag, that's where you get one. Well, then we had garbage bags filled with garbage. Well, what do we do then? So then certain intersections became centralized places to drop off those full garbage bags. And then people saw, well, we've got garbage bags piling up. So someone who had a wagon started hauling those garbage bags out to outside the red zone to a dumpster or to an area where the city could pick them up efficiently and easily. And then people just took that on as their thing. Okay, my thing is I'm going to make sure the garbage is taken care of. And then uh, there was snow. So the snow needed shoveled. And it started with um, one guy who had two or three shovels that he'd happened to bring with him in his work trailer. And uh, people started using those to shovel. We quickly realized that's not enough shovels. So word got out on social media. We need more shovels and and all of a sudden hundreds of shovels showed up and there were shovels stationed all the way down wellington street and some of the other roads and then whenever someone had some time if they wanted a workout they could grab the shovel and help with shoveling and very quickly everything was always shoveled and cleared and then ice became an issue so uh salt started emerging people grabbed <laughs> salt bags and then stationed those throughout the road and with every single need you could imagine these little groups formed that started doing that. And I'm a a networker and I love connecting with people. And so I just started connecting with some of these various people who had started to get involved. And I especially developed a heart to connect with these drivers. A lot of them did not come with anybody. So the Western convoys, they had traveled together for quite some time, but it's probably been reported elsewhere, but the, the Ontario convoy, it arrived the day before the Western convoy, which is how it ended up on Wellington Street. So what maybe not everyone, all the listeners realize is that uh, most of the boys on uh, Wellington Street right in front of Parliament were from uh, southern Ontario. Just so the listeners can can visualize this, the Wellington Street, for you know, for your information, is the one in front of the Parliament buildings in the Peace Tower and the Senate and the PMO. The one that everyone would have seen the one with the the crane and the stage and, and the central place where, where people begin to gather. The the front line is as we called it, 
before Frontline took on a different meaning, but at that point, I called it the Frontline, and that's it was mostly trucks from Southern Ontario. It was a mix of, there were landscaping trucks and, and, and semis and dump trucks, and they were a lot of just working vehicles, whereas a lot of the Southern Convoy was, or the Western Convoy was long haul trucks that were a little better designed for this kind of thing. Some guys who got trapped on Wellington Street didn't even have cabs or like sleeper cabs. So they, that, that was some of them initially were sleeping just on the seats of their trucks. And so they ended up trapped on Wellington Street. And it's important to note too, that it was the police who actually blocked the road in the first place. These guys came expecting just to drive around the city for the, for the weekend. Maybe, you know, no one really knew what to expect. And then they ended up trapped downtown and forced into a position where they were symbolic of the whole movement that was not initially these guys plan to be trapped there and to, to symbolize a whole movement but that's what happened and, and none of them knew each other none of them had come in in a group besides maybe you know a handful of drivers who came together but not in any kind of large sense so i saw a need there to connect with these guys and make sure they're being taken care of and so i got to know a bunch developed trust amongst them and then when slowly things started to form into a little more of a structure amongst the drivers, we almost formed kind of a trucker's union, as it were, to make sure the boys were taken care of. And then I stepped into taking on this de facto role of what we ended up, we were called captains. And so, and then we had block captains, which were individuals who were in a truck or another vehicle on each of the blocks of Wellington Street. And then we'd start hey, having meetings where we'd find out, you know, what what people need, and then ensuring that the if someone needs something, they can reach out to their block captain, and if their block captain can't get it, he can reach out to myself, and if I can't get it, I can reach out to some other people who are helping to take care of the truckers. But I, yeah, I was in this for three weeks, and I I heard these names thrown around, you know, the individuals you mentioned at the start, of course, but. I never met them and except the, I guess actually full disclosure, there was, I was on a Zoom call for some meeting and Tamara Leach was just finishing up an interview when the host was bringing me on for a, a different interview. And we, so we were briefly in like a waiting room together on, on Zoom and I was like, oh, you're Tamara. Nice to meet you. <laughs> well, that, that's one of the things I've, I found so interesting about it because it's it's unfair to say that there was nobody who was part of the convoy, you know, who didn't have an unsavory past, just as it was unfair to try to label everybody by it. And what you had the media doing is desperately hunting for anybody who's ever said anything stupid on social media to try and claim that, the you know, the thousands of people who were out there and, and, and the enormous number of Canadians who supported it were all associated with that. And that was just simply a method of, of ignoring the concerns, right? If we can find somebody who has said something stupid, and in any group of large people, you can find that. It's very, very easy to do. You know, then we can dismiss all of the concerns as related to what was, uh, what was it that Trudeau said to the, the Jewish MP, right? You stand with people who have swastikas. <laughs> you know, what's surprising to me is not that there was a handful of, of strange characters out there. What's surprising to me is how few there was, because when you're talking tens of thousands of people loosely united by this, this single goal of uh, ending the vaccine mandates and the wider goal 
of freedom. You have tens of thousands of people coming from all over the country, all these different backgrounds for weeks at a time. And the best they could do was repeating, you know, maybe half a dozen stories that they managed to grab out of that whole thing that the media just kept recycling and recycling. And it wasn't surprising to me that there was a handful of, of, of just foolish people. It was surprising to me that that's all there was because I've been to lots of music festivals and I do, I used to travel before the mandates and it doesn't take uh it takes a much, usually it takes a much smaller group than that to have much more troublemakers. It was, there was so many just decent people. And then, you know, I I've said before the, the crowd, the mob mentality is always, you know, labeled as this horrible thing, but it's not when the mob is overwhelmingly positive because what I saw happen over and over again, for example, just, you know, a week ago, there was a counter protest and uh, one gentleman, I mean, he, he wasn't, he wasn't pushing or anything, but he came up to her and was being a little rude. And then five people come in and, and pull him aside and say, Hey, you know, she's got the freedom to be here too, like respect her space. And he's like, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. And he backs away. And that kind of stuff happened all the time. There was one officer was given an individual trouble for having an open beer. And, and then a few other guys said, hey, man, uh, just pour out the beer. It's not worth it. Like, pour out the beer. And the guy's like, you're right, you're right. He pours out the beer and throws it away in a garbage. <laughs> and, and that was happening all the time. Is even, even the handful of people who might have, you know, in a different context, got frustrated. There were so many people who knew how important peace was and how important this mission was that they watched out for each other. And uh, so it's not surprising to me that there was a, a handful of silly people, but it was surprising for me that it was only a very tiny handful. And th that's why the media had to keep recycling the same stories. It's interesting you bring that up, but you actually answered the next question I was going to ask because, you know, like I worked, I, I worked on job sites and stuff like that for years and, and, and like activism when you're in, when you're in a situation where people are being provocative, where they're screaming at you, where emotions and passions are running high, you know, it's very, very easy to lose your head. And I've seen plenty of people do it. And so the fact that this went on for weeks without anybody losing their head in a way that like it, w it would have been very easy to do, you know, it was cold, people were out there and yes, there was a sense of camaraderie, but you're also there because, you know, because of vaccine mandates, which is something people feel passionate about to take weeks off work, you know, and, and sit there in the Capitol. And yet, you know, there wasn't a single story of, of, you know, somebody getting punched or shoved or. And, and if it was, right, it would have been on the front page of every national broadsheet in the country. So you know that they didn't find one, because if they found one, we would all be hearing about it over and over and over again, like that one unidentified swastika flag that showed, that showed up on the first day, and you got groups like True North and stuff who offered a $7,000 reward for the identification of this guy, and he just vanished back into the ether, and nobody, nobody ever heard from him again, you know? like, And I just, like, you know, who flies a Nazi flag in 2022, right? Like, there's a couple of skinheads you know, that are various parts of groups, but let's just face it, this just doesn't happen, right? And flying a Confederate flag in Canada just shows a level of illiteracy that's kind of hilarious. To label the movement was kind of ridiculous. What do you say to all the journalists who basically said, you know, that it, that it kind of turned into a block party and that the residents of Ottawa were angry at you? It's impossible to generalize the uh, residents of Ottawa as a full thing because over and over again, I heard encouragement from people in Ottawa. One of the guys who we'll get into the live from the shed thing at some point, but one of the guys who was my cameraman was from Ottawa and, and he just came down and said he wanted to help. And I found out he'd been involved in film in the past. And so he started helping me and 
Uh, I remember multiple taxi drivers that I got rides with to go get supplies. And, and one guy was really adamant. He said, do not leave, do not leave. You know, if you leave, you're going to lose and you need to stay here. And the hotels have been amazing. Like they've been so good to us. And, you know, it's one thing that they appreciate the business, but they've gone above and beyond like uh, having their bathrooms open to allow drivers to go in and out and, and use them. And just, you know, there was a little apprehension in the first couple days, but then realizing when we were about, and uh, I've talked to some of the staff here and just how encouraging the people are, how, how polite everyone's been, and, and then how busy they, they, they were uh, with selling out a whole lot of the times and all that business. The local businesses that did stay open did great. Um, sadly, some of the only harassment they faced was from public health and from the police later on that they stayed open. They had lineups out the door. Actually, I did a, a live video yesterday and I walked by, you know, the, the Tim Hortons and the McDonald's not too far from Parliament that used to be the regular coffee spot for people in that area. And, and they were dead. And it, it was kind of sad because for three weeks, I'd seen a lineup out, out the door, basically most hours of the day of someone coming to get their coffee. And now when the city is supposedly, you know, free from all these troublemakers, then, then these businesses only have a smattering of people in them. So there was definitely a, a mixed bag and I can acknowledge that there were difficulties. The horns. Yeah. I mean, I was getting a little sick of them too. I, <laughs> you know, I, I actually, honestly, I think a lot of the people were fine for the excuse to, to not honk as much after the rules passed. Cause you know, they, they felt this need to keep honking because everyone else was, but then once it was, once they made that new court order, then it was kind of a relief because we could actually talk to each other again. And <laughs> my ears were starting to hurt. So I, I can see the frustration at the same time. It's hard if your listeners haven't been to Ottawa, maybe can't fully visualize it. But the main, the protest was centralized mostly, you know, within a few blocks of parliament and the vast majority of the buildings, there are all government offices, which have been sitting empty for who knows how long everyone's on Zoom calls and such. And it was really only a smattering of some condominiums and a few, I, I, there's no even, there'd be no like detached houses there. I think on the one end, there's a few condominiums that you probably could have heard the honking from there, but it's not like this was in the middle of a, a residential area by any means. It's mostly government buildings and the trucks left emergency lanes open the whole time. Actually, when I was walking down there yesterday, the, that area of Ottawa is more locked down now by police than, than it's ever been. So yeah, there were definitely difficulties that, that it caused no doubt to residents, but the, I thought it was so strange when all these politicians were jumping on us for that and saying, Oh, (laughs) that Doug Ford had the audacity, Doug Ford, the premier of Ontario who shut down businesses for, you know, the better part of two years came on and said that we didn't care about local businesses. And we were making businesses suffer. I said, I, I just couldn't believe that he was able to put those words out of his mouth. And it's like, you, you do remember why we're here, right? It's like, <laughs> the government managed to like single-handedly just like cripple the economy, you know, in the name of public safety. And then a handful of businesses that might have been affected by the convoy, you know, are all of a sudden these martyrs and this is all terrible. And I, I'm told Trudeau wants to give money to the Ottawa businesses now. And well, I'm, I'm, Trudeau wants to give money to anybody who might vote for him. <laughs> yes. Anybody who was watching any footage of Wellington Street, there was a big soundstage set up. 
There were people who had uh, parties there every weekend because you had all these weekend warriors who were driving up to support the truckers. And then anybody who has seen any footage, like the best, the best footage for journalists was, was the Peace Tower and Parliament buildings, of course. It's a good shot because you see all these trucks and you see all these people and then you see the, the government buildings in the background. And in almost all these shots, you see this live from the shed construction built on the back of a, of a black freight liner. And that's where you, you know, you live streamed your little media empire for the couple of weeks that the convoy was ongoing. So how did that all come about? Like everything in the convoy, it was someone had an idea and then some people joined in and made it happen. It was amazing just with everyone willing to work so hard and so keen to help that that things just happened. So the shed was initially kind of a meeting place for some of the drivers around there, just a place to warm up and hang out. I quickly you know the the group of drivers outgrew that pretty quick as people got to know each other and they kind of moved the driver's lounge to the the back of a trailer which is kind of a whole cool story in in, in itself but anyway they had a bigger space there and we were like people were just brainstorming of like how could we got this shed up here and it's in prime real estate like how can we utilize this and I can't even remember now who had the first brainwave. Yeah, I want to say it was a friend of mine, Sam, but I can't remember. But somebody had the idea to throw a stage on top of this thing. And everyone's like, Oh, that's awesome. That would be cool. And um, by everyone, I mean, like just our group of friends that happened to had all been working and hanging around in that area. And so then the call went out and some some Dutch framers snuck some lumber in and whipped up this stage and some uh, stairs going up to it. And, and then it, it evolved from there because quickly this became, everyone's like, oh, can we get photos from up there? Well, then we had to actually put in a security detail because there were just so many people who wanted to get up there. So we had to have someone kind of guarding it. And then it became sort of this uh, treat to hang, hang in front of journalists. So I would start, you know, I'd offer, journalists could come up there, but then in exchange for getting their number. So then, you know, I could share stories with them from our drivers. And the goal was, I, I was so frustrated with seeing these lies that were told about the incredible men and women that were down there and the sacrifices they were making for the freedom of others. And I wanted those stories to be told. And so, yeah, we started doing our own little social media thing with some live from the shed content and then also connecting with journalists you know, through our shtick of this stage. And, and, and they really enjoyed journalists getting up there to get good shots of the crowd and the Peace Tower. And so it was able to network with a lot of journalists that way and uh, be able to share our stories and, and get it out there. And, and then we, well, I, I'd seen people like doing this live streaming all over and I, I've never live streamed in my life. I, I mean, I've done at Facebook like other people and such, but I always thought it was odd too that who watches like someone walk around with a phone for two hours on YouTube. And anyway, I thought the whole thing was a little silly, but I did see how it allowed people to get like a real perspective, unedited, uncensored of what was really going on. And so I initially bought a webcam and I slapped it up on top of the shed. Partly it was originally just as like some security footage too. And I started 
recording and initially recording onto my laptop. And then I figured out how to stream it because I thought, oh, that might be cool. But then I was quickly destroying my data plan. So we put the call out almost as a joke of like, hey, Starlink would be cool. And this, I kid you not, within hours of, so we had a digital sign that you might've seen and we put up there, we need Starlink. And within hours that night, a guy showed up offering us his Starlink dish. And so he showed up that night and we wired up his Starlink dish. And so we had a steady uh, internet connection. And so then I was able to do, you know, it wasn't fear. It wasn't twenty four seven as twenty four seven as it could be because there's still a generator and there were still <laughs> issues with broadcasting from a shed. But I started doing that live feed and trying to keep it live as much as possible. Then I went and bought this three sixty camera, an Insta three sixty. If they want to sponsor us, let me know. <laughs> and we threw an Insta three sixty camera up there to give a better angle and to be able to see what was more going on. And uh, yeah, started doing that. And then the one night I was worried that, well, there were many nights we were worried about getting raided, but the one night specifically, I, I was, I was kind of on night watch, staying up all night and watching the feed. And, and then I got bored. So we had this microphone that we had talked about using for a podcast or something that n- never materialized. And so I plugged it in and started just talking on the live stream and then people were loving it. And they started asking all these questions and all of a sudden, like more people started viewing and subscribing. I was like, this is, I, anyway, it's so weird. It's like, I, I'm not into this, like this Insta famous stuff. I think it's all very conceited and it's all very strange and talking to a screen. A few friends walked in that night and were like, what are you doing, Dave? And like, I'm talking to the internet. This is fun. You know, I felt like such a loser, but so I'm talking to, <laughs> Oh, it's very strange. And then people, but people were loving it. And so I tried to give some more updates and just to see how many people all over the world that even were, were watching what was happening and wanting to get the truth of what was happening because they, they, you know, if, if this whole thing did nothing else, it exposed the deep corruption in our Canadian mainstream media, just the downright to go home at night and flip on CTV or CTBC news and and see outright lies being presented that, that there is no way that that journalist did not know was a lie because, you know, a, something as simple as like, oh, on the one weekend, they said there were 3000 people. And it's like, oh, come on now. Like there, you know, there was three, there was over 3000 just packed around. If you look, if you can look back on some of those weekends from, from my 360 footage, you know, there was a few thousand simply squished around that main area. And then this went on for several blocks and all the way down the streets. And, you know, on the, on the low end, you gotta be, I, I, you know, I'd be comfortable saying, Oh, you know, in the tens of thousands, but the uh, certainly not 3000 or this stuff of the, anyway, I could go on and on with examples, but the the stuff about the memorial, the war memorial and the, because at one point, because someone set up a tent, like, maybe 30 meters or something from the war memorial they had this one angle that kind of made it look like it was close to the memorial and said that the memorial was further desecrated by someone setting up a tent it's like oh my god that was on ctv and this kind of stuff so anyway to be able to get those live broadcasts out and allow people to see what was really going down and then to provide some commentary and and then it 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 ended up serving an even more powerful purpose closer to the end there but anyway 
One of the things a lot of people don't know is that the media very frequently uses wide camera angle lenses to lie. Like we, I work for a pro-life organization and we would hang these banners off of these overpasses for the longest time. And at one point, CBC ran a headline that said, anti-abortion banner hangs over morning crash. And what they had done is they had taken a, a fender bender a couple of kilometers down the road and angled up with the banner over it and made it look as if it crashed because we had a banner up and didn't mention that the didn't mention that the accident had happened before we got there. Yeah, and that's just total, you know, it's beyond I understand like everyone has an editorial bent and and that's that's humans, you know, we're all going to have our our biases and and you know, the most trustworthy people are the ones who acknowledge those biases. I I'd, I'd often find that the journalists you, you knew a journalist was 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 a left-leaning journalist when they would say they're neutral because any conservative journalist would say yeah we're we're a conservative or we're a centrist right outlet etc but every single of these left-wing journalists would say that we're neutral and but but anyway so I understand having an editorial bent we all do but but these downright lies going like that whole thing of the the swastika where even the slightest bit of of good journalism would would show that this was an isolated incident, perhaps even a planted incident. You know, this person had no markings, a ski mask, no way to identify them. You know, very suspicious. And it was a pretty anti-masker crowd, from what I remember. The only guy wearing the mask was the Nazi. It was funny because it was almost a way of like, uh, you know, even on the cold weather, you know, I'd put my balaclava up sometime. But if you pass someone, you'd kind of slide it down and smile just to remind them that I, you know, I'm with you. Because <laughs> that... No, it was weird because when you stepped into the red zone, the the fear was actually more against people with masks, not in like an excessive fear way, but you know, more just watching out. Like I, I don't, I don't want them to cause any trouble because there'd be a concern if there's a big group of people came in with with masks, you'd be worried they're coming there to stir up some trouble. So it's funny because, and then it, you know, no, for the rest of this two years, everyone's scared of the people without masks, but when it, there it was, you'd you'd be a little concerned. The people with masks, because and and two, it, it you know why are you hiding your face? Because you know we're all these the, the trucks set the standard. They came there, you know their phone numbers on their trucks, their their company names slapped across their trailers, and the whole world knew who they were. And then you know at, at first I was a, a little nervous too. Am I going to get hate mail? Am I going to get in trouble? And then it's like you know what these guys put everything on the line. They put their companies out there. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to walk around, you know, proud of who I am and, and take what comes. So, but yeah, yeah, it was, anyway, there was not a, it was not a mass crowd. People were happy to show who they were and, and where they were from. And so that whole incident with the, the, the swastika thing, which I can't even believe we're still talking about because, you know, that the media is still talking about because it was such a, such an isolated thing. It was an isolated thing, but once, once the prime minister mentions it and it makes international news and a Jewish MP gets interviewed on on you know TV TV stations in the U.S. to talk about how the prime minister, the blackface enthusiast, had the guts to talk about this, right? It's it becomes more of a story. But on to when you said take what comes. So I was in I was in Ottawa the the first day of the crackdown, and it was another just an interesting example of how the media can distort not on purpose but by accident. Because I was getting all these texts from people who were like, "What's going on? It looks like Ottawa's under siege." Because every camera in the city was pointed at that sort of surging line in between the Hotel Weston and the Chateau Laurier, right? Where you had the cops slowly pushing up the street 
you had a couple of hostile protesters who, like, there was a bunch of them that were pretty high, a bunch of guys that had a belly full of liquor, and they were getting in the cops' faces and being pretty aggressive. And that was a world away from where the shed was. Like, from the shed and, all, and that whole area, you couldn't even hear what was going on down there. So you got everybody who's just watching this kind of thinking, wow, like, you know, there's a massive crackdown going on when, you know, there was like, you know, 50 feet separates a party atmosphere from from these two lines facing off against each other. Obviously, those of us more involved, like, knew what was going on down there, but the general crowd did not. Like, we moved ahead with regular scheduling on the stage. There was live music. There were speakers, like... The bulk of the people were still down at the stage in the gathering area and had no idea what was going on down uh, down at that end because the only like unless you happen to know someone down there or you had a network of contacts then uh, you'd have no idea. Like I said, it was a whole different world away, so it, it really wasn't. Yeah, that it was still a very festive atmosphere as of Friday, which is I think what you're referring to. Yeah. Yeah, and then so then we hit Saturday. And Saturday is when the crackdown went from the cops, like it took them, I think, seven hours to make their way up from the West and to back to the Chateau Laurier. Like they were, they were literally moving by inches at some point. I'd go down there every hour or so to, to watch their progress. And sometimes I'd go back there after an hour and it didn't look like they'd moved. And so I initially thought Friday night, I'm like, this, this, it's going to take them weeks to clear this place because if they're, that's the pace they're moving at. And then you've got all these trucks up and down Wellington. These trucks are basically fortresses, Right. But they had the whole thing kind of cleared by one o'clock. So you were you were there. You were actually in the shed. Give us a sense of what actually ha- ended up happening on the Saturday. We all had the same feelings that you know this is going to this is going to take a while, and that there wasn't too much apprehension at that point. And at that point too, they were moving along, and you know, yeah, the the crowd was locking arms and and defending the trucks. But I mean, I I think from what. I saw too. I think the uh, you made it sound almost a little more aggressive than than it was. Yeah, they, there was definitely you know some probably rude comments and and whatnot. But a lot of it was just people trying to hold their ground and stand there. And then if if they were at all troublesome, they got pulled away and and arrested. And and so we thought that was how it was going to continue. You know, the crowd was going to be frustrated, but the police would keep moving along and arrest. People and eventually all the trucks expected to be arrested. They were all fully prepared for that. They were, you know, they were going to stay with their truck. And then the plan to step down and be arrested was, was, was basically everyone's plan at that point. Anyone who wasn't comfortable getting arrested had left at that point. And, and those who remained were, were prepared for that and, and were comfortable with that. Did quite a few leave before the final push or no? There was some that left, certainly not a majority by any stretch along Wellington there. Yeah, like there was a trickling of guys who left through that week and then kind of there that when that final push on Friday was happening, then there was, you know, maybe another 10 trucks on Wellington that left. But I'd say like, you know, over half the trucks stayed and then kind of regrouped. They moved closer together and right around the parliament to kind of take that last symbolic stand. And like I said, they were prepared to to be arrested. So on Friday, yeah, we expected that they would continue to kind of work up the street and eventually, you know, arrest and tow each of the trucks. And, but, so I went, I was up fairly late Friday and then, you know, the police hadn't moved too far. So I went back to my hotel to grab a little bit of a sleep. And, and then I got a call at like seven in the morning or something 
that the, uh, the police had started pushing like hard and fast and, you know, things were getting violent. So I ran on down there. I, well, they, they were trying to block everyone. I had to kind of sneak around past some cops because uh, they were, they were stopping everyone from basically what they did is they waited for everyone to trickle out at night. And then, and then they went, they locked it all down and just went hard on and fast on everyone who was left. So by the time I got down there, the police had already moved up to just across the intersection from the shed. And you'll see when I, I fired up the live feed again, the police are already right there. And even at that point, I didn't realize how violent things had become. I mean, it makes sense because of how quickly they moved, but they had been tear gassing and pepper spraying and started beating people with their batons. And because, because of the, the, the people's determination to either stand or sit or or, you know, that, that peaceful resistance. And, uh, I mean, I was still saying name, you know, name calling or yelling frustratedly at the cops is still a, is still a peaceful resistance. And even if, even if they were not like, uh, making it easy to be arrested, I, I did not see or see footage of people, you know, no one hitting a cop or that people weren't uh, giving themselves up easily on, on Friday, but they weren't they certainly nothing that justified being beaten that, that I've seen in any of the clips I've, I've watched that maybe you saw something differently, but anyway, they, the, they all of a sudden obviously changed tactics and uh, were given the green light to just, you know, go full, full lockdown because they, they, they came flying up and just beating, they were screaming. And, and then by the time they got up there, yeah, people kind of, formed together to make a last stand there uh, in front of the shed. That's where the bulk of the people who were left, who had made it into Wellington. And it's important for like listeners to understand too, there were thousands of people attempting to get downtown to stand with these drivers that were, you know, they were prepared to, to do that, but the roads had all been blocked and police had put up fences at this point and basically cornered off the entire area so the media presented it like nobody came to help and all most people had left by then but that's just not true you could look i mean you could prove it if you looked up records of the hotels were uh, sold out again that weekend like they had been on the previous weekends and and tons of people were there but so then i was in i i was in the shed and i kind of had a moment where i said okay well Am I really, it's one thing to say you're prepared to do this, but you know, another thing to be facing it. And at that point, you know, yeah, I could have hit record and, and got out of there, but I felt, yeah, I've, I was inspired by these guys who'd been willing to put everything on the line and I wasn't going to leave them at that last hour as it were. So I sat in the shed, I ran the live feed. I started commentating, just explaining to people what was happening. I mean, you can hear in my voice, I'm quite emotionally distraught in that video. If you go to live from the shed and look up the YouTube footage, I, I read a few cards from the kids that were hanging on the wall. The whole wall of the shed is just all these cards from from kids that the the owner of the truck received while he was driving there. And, and then all of a sudden, it, it, same kind of thing like what had happened before is it started out there kind of just moving along. And then all of a sudden, you know, boom, they go for it. And, and you hear screams and you hear yells and and then I heard them when they they quickly made it up to the shed and I heard guys climbing up onto the shed. If you've been following this, you've probably come across uh, Peace Guy and he's the gentleman with the Duck Dynasty looking beard and camo who just stands around holding the peace sign. 
And uh, he stood for hours, that man just holding the peace sign. He was actually sleeping on the streets for six nights because he didn't have a place to stay before uh, my friend Jay, who owns the shed truck, put him up in a hotel to take care of him. And to the end, he was just standing on top of the shed holding the peace sign. And uh, these these SWAT guys, whatever they were, they came up and they they pulled him down. And then I just sat on the couch hands at my side, just waiting for the inevitable. And the first thing I saw was the muzzle of this large gun. And he came in, he swung and pointed it towards me and yelled at me to get on the ground. And then he yells out clear. And then like someone else came in and it was like straight out of some kind of James Bond movie or something. And so I, I just like, I lay on the ground, I got my hands at my side. And I mean, and actually, and I've, I've mentioned this before the, I, I have no complaints about, I mean, I, I didn't like getting a gun pointed at me, but as far as the professionalism of that officer, he got me on the ground, he cuffed me and was not, he was not rough with me in any more than you would be to keep a man on the ground. He, you know, he put his knee down on me and, and held me down while he cuffed me. But I mean, I didn't resist and, and he was not uh, violent at all. So, so I'm appreciative of that personally, that I was not physically attacked by any officers even though, I mean, we, if, if you wanted to, if, if someone wanted to let out some anger and take a swing at me, it would have been just the two of us in, in the shed. And well, I guess the, the microphone would have recorded it, but I didn't have a camera in there. So you can hear the, you can hear the audio of my arrest and just me leaving peacefully with that officer. But I mean, other guys were not so fortunate. It, if you do some digging around and I'm trying to get some of those videos out there too, just multiple videos of uh, people being beat you can see the one video that that my camera's caught of one of our drivers getting kneed repeatedly in the side after he'd surrendered himself there's another video of a guy who drove the crane truck actually and uh, he was standing in front of his friend's truck just waiting for them to come ready to surrender and he got pepper sprayed like there's a photo of him point blank like a foot away pepper sprayed to the face and then hit with batons and he had someone basically pull him out of the crowd and he crawled away and he wasn't even arrested. And that's what was strange about it is some people were arrested. Some people weren't arrested. Some people were charged. Some weren't charged. My one friend, Tyler, he was, he's an owner of a truck and he tried to turn himself in. He stood there and said, I'm the owner. I'm the owner. You can arrest me. And they just pushed him away and said, leave. And then other guys stood out and said, I'm the driver. And then they grabbed him and beat him and handcuffed him. So it, it, it really seemed to depend on, on the sort of the heart or the, the mindset of whatever cop happened to be grabbing them. Some of them took it as a full license to just, you know, let out all their childhood dreams of being in the army or something. And other ones were, other ones were very professional uh, about it, but there was far more violence and abuse than, than was at all necessary in a crowd like that. People were not, being violent and and that it's a great testimony to to the determination of these drivers because these are not guys who you know like to be pushed around there's some some big rough dudes you're trying to put that as politically as possible yeah yeah they're like the kind of guys who you look at their girlfriend wrong and you know you you might be getting some trouble and but but to see how even the hardest of guys you know their hearts were softened by these people and their determination to stay peaceful and to to resist this tyranny and to make a stand 
was incredible. And to see these guys who, like I said, it, you know, they're in a different context. If you look at them the wrong way, you might've faced trouble, but to see them get, get beaten, get pushed, you know, see their trucks get, get jumped on by police and for them to just calmly walk out and, you know, in some cases go to their knees and simply wait for the police to arrest them. is just a testimony to, to the determination of these guys and the spirit that was down there, just that all everyone working together emboldened to, to stand for freedom and, and to stand for a peaceful resistance was, was truly incredible to watch. So then, so then I was passed from one officer to another officer to another. And finally we were down to this like makeshift outdoor processing center and the no stories were passed from cop to cop of what happened. I mean, they, they barely said anything today. They just said, that oh take him down to the whatever and then they passed me off to someone else and when i finally got to the officer who would have been the one to write up the charge you know she was actually very very kind and this is why i know there's huge division amongst the police because i was trying to explain myself to her and she says stop stop just stop trust me stop and i was like okay okay and then she goes through and says in more legal language but essentially says that I don't know what happened. And so I'm going to let you go. And then she said, aren't you glad you didn't say anything? <laughs> and I said, uh, yes. I said, yes, thank you very much, ma'am. Thank you very much. And so she didn't uh, charge me, but other friends were not so lucky. One of my friends got four charges, but same kind of thing. He was passed from one person to another. No story was really communicated on what did or didn't happen, but, but he got mischief, obstructing justice. I don't remember what the other two were, failure to comply, maybe. I have no idea, but all sorts of these charges. And then we were all loaded into these like prisoner transport vehicles and made to sit in those for, I was in there for maybe an hour or something before it finally filled up. And then they drove this thing outside the city, like half an hour away and I mean, I, it was strange too, because at that point I hadn't been charged. And like, looking back in retrospect, it's like odd that, okay, if I wasn't charged, shouldn't I have been free to just walk away at that point? Why was I loaded into a transport vehicle? Anyway, I don't know the legality of that, but, but we're all compliant people. These aren't people who were ones to like fight with police and, and such. So everyone just kind of did what they were told. So I got in this transport van, I got shipped outside the city, dropped in a parking lot. And, and like left to fend for myself, you know, thankfully, just another amazing story of the kind of people that are down here. There was, uh, there were two vehicles waiting at that parking lot where I got dropped off from, uh, it's called Capital City Biker Church. And they're a, a lovely group of people who've been helping to just care for the people down here from the beginning. And so they were waiting for people like me to be dropped off and they immediately said, hop in. And I was pretty shook at that point. It was quite a rattling experience. And they drove me to their church back in Ottawa and they had hot meals and, you know, coffee and water and a place to sit and just chat with other people who'd been arrested and to just have a chance to kind of have a safe place to unwind for a while after that whole experience. So that's, that's what they're, that's how the kind of whole thing went down. I, another friend of mine, uh, a young woman, she was arrested. Ashley is her name and she's dating one of the drivers and she was arrested, but the driver, Tyler, like I'd mentioned earlier, was not, and he was trying to get himself arrested because he wanted to go with her. But for whatever reason, they pulled his girlfriend out and arrested her 
but then he him they just pushed him away and told him to leave and so she ended up in a different transport vehicle to me and at a different parking lot and she didn't know anyone there and she didn't have a vehicle and uh, her phone was dead by that point because for some reason she was in this she's it was all it was like four hours i'd have to look over the text exactly when we finally heard back from her but basically everyone had been let out by then but we were still waiting to hear from her and we're getting really worried because we hadn't heard from her and uh, but yeah she, it was starting like uh, getting dark by that point and she was dropped off and the police officer said well there's uh there's an so you can get a charger there and so she walks over there with a dead phone and Thankfully, the guy let her charge the phone there at the gas station until she could call for a ride to, to pick her up from this random spot she was dumped outside the city. Like, it, the whole thing was just the strangest, <laughs> the strangest experience and, and, and really terrible. And I mean, and this is just from my angle and some of my friends, and I'm sure people in different intersections and different areas had similar perhaps worse interactions based on some of the different videos that I've seen flying around. Final question for you then, David, what's, what's next after all of this? Well, at least what can you say on a public podcast? <laughs> Nothing's ever been secret. Right. And like, that's what I, I've often said. It must be funny to be the intelligence guy. I can just visualize. And we often joked about when we were hanging out with the drivers um, and supporters that it was just like, Imagine them, you know, if they are listening to our phones and they're all trying to track this stuff, they, I mean, we were confused about who was in charge or what the plan was. We had like, at, very quickly, we realized, you know what, we're going to find the people, we're going to make friends, we're going to take care of the people we care about, and that's all we can do. And so, you know, the whole street captain thing sounds way more impressive than it was. It was simply... I was someone who came to be known on the street as, as like a trustworthy source of help and communication. And then I was networked with some other people who, who stepped into similar roles and we started meeting together. I mean, there, a, a journalist could have happily sat down in one of our meetings. They were like, anything said at the meeting was already public, you know, 12 hours before, because by the time it ever got communicated to drivers, the whole world knew like it was basically an update on what's going on in the city and and then you know do we need any needs how are people for fuel you know is everyone okay we had like a, a whiteboard where we wrote down needs and locations of where people might need those have those needs and then uh, then we'd pray together actually which was incredible too it, it started at the first few there was like a pastor who would just kind of do a blessing symbolically almost but by the end it, it was more much more than symbolism it was you know, every people stood and took their hats off and, and it was a very somber time of just them, you know, praying for, for safety. And it was quite amazing because a lot of these guys were not the type of men who prayed before, but to just be when they came to realize how important their, their call was there and, and that the brotherhood that formed and that unifying force of just freedom uh, and love for country and for each other came together in a very powerful and religious way amongst these guys. And so I would have been happy for a journalist or a spy to watch that happen because it, there was nothing sinister going on in these meetings. It was simply caring for one another. And yeah, so the, I mean, I, in some ways, I wish we had some top secret plan, but the last few days have just been scrambling. Some people are gone. Some people, 
you know, called it quits after this. Some people are still here, but in different locations. All, all the kind of networks that had formed on Wellington are, and other areas like more or less dissolved. And, and so it's kind of trying to, right now it's simply, you know, no one's really thinking that much of, of some next steps. It's more like get the trucks back is, is kind of priority number one because the trucks were all impounded. My camera equipment was all impounded. A lot of people have stuff that was taken. And so it's a very simple thing of like resting and uh, making sure everyone's, you know, taken care of and has a place to stay until they can get their, their, their trucks back and then go from, go from there. And I mean, it's very funny that, you know, that's pretty crummy, terrible. If your plan is to get people out of the city, probably to confiscate all their stuff, including their livelihood is not the best way to get them out of the city because now all, all these guys uh, are just waiting around to get their trucks back. So, and no one can speak for all these boys. Uh, I mean, I don't think it's anything secret to say that, you know, some of them will certainly want to take their trucks, you know, to protest somewhere again. I, I think it's pretty clear that the battle for Ottawa, as it were, is, is lost and, and over. I don't think anyone has any interest in heading back there to, to face the Gestapo. But uh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if some guys, you know, perhaps drive to other protests like, you know, Quebec City is doing its thing and, 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 and Winnipeg and, and these various people are gathering multiple places to continue to, to push back against these, especially now against these emergency powers and this massive overreach. So there, there's, no, there's no centralized plan, just like there's never been a, a fully centralized <laughs> plan, but some guys are... I want to get that truck and get out of here. And other guys, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if they, they maybe want to continue to make their voices or their horns heard, heard wherever it is that they, they head. But it's funny because I, I saw media reports of the, these people, you know, regrouping on the outskirts and like planning for attack. And it's just funny to, to be on the inside and see it's like, man, people are just like, just pulling their pants on again, basically, is all that's happening. So th there has been some spots set up. You know, people generously gave land to just allow them to grab a, you know, grab a shower, a hot meal, you know, connect with people and talk all this through because it, it's very, you know, it's been really good to just meet with some drivers and other people who were down there and just process that. It was a very traumatic experience for sure. And it's not something that I ever hope to have to be a part of again. And so a lot of it has simply just been taking it easy, uh, connecting with people and, and waiting for the trucks to, to get released is, is the top secret plan. Well, Dave, thanks so much for joining us and going through all this with us. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for having me. And I think increasingly the time of the trucks is coming to an end, but the, the time of each and every Canadian and freedom-loving person to, to take a stand is is just beginning so i encourage people you know the, the the those truck drivers put everything on the line you know they lit that torch of freedom and it's important to you know carry that flame and to take that torch and for everyone to to peacefully honorably to stand for freedom in wherever you find yourself so get some friends together grab grab your flag and and go make your your voices heard wherever you are and 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 take what the sacrifice that these drivers made it's it's not over yet for them many of them 
may have difficulties with their livelihoods for a long time to come. So make their sacrifices worth something and uh, take a stand for freedom. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with David Paisley of the Freedom Convoy. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you're interested in this conversation, please head over to lightsightnews.com. Click on the podcast tab. You can subscribe to listen to future shows and you can check out past shows. We air once a week on Wednesday. Thanks so much for joining us.